0: Welcome to Health Yeah. I'm Jack Ayers.
1: I'm Rachel Loader. And I'm Kate Dixon. This is a podcast by health professionals and students for health professionals and students, keeping you in the know on health policy happenings in Kansas and beyond. Just as in medicine, the world of policy evolves quickly and things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast.
0: The team was recorded approximately 30 minutes before the episode.
1: we don't have our lives
0: together. And the dose was recorded on February 10th.
1: Time for the tea. So first thing up this morning, I want to give you a little update on the coronavirus. So there's been a change in reporting requirements by the Chinese authorities that jumped the number of cases on Thursday. I'm sorry, on Friday um, by more than 14,000. It reached almost 15,000 new cases in just one night. Um, this raise the total number of people infected in the Hubei province?
0: You know better than I do. I don't know. To
1: 48,206. And there's already been some concern that there have been issues in reporting. And this added to those worries. The World Health Organization is still making it very aware to the globe that this is a, a very grave threat. And it's asking other international um, community Um, leaders and state authorities and researchers to band together to try to figure out what's going on with this virus and to develop a vaccine. There were still only 15 reported cases when I checked yesterday. Again, go to cdc.gov for the most up-to-date information here in the United States, but the the whole goal right now is just containment and figuring out the specifics of the virus still. Another update for you. Um, two weeks ago for the T, we were uh, awaiting the vote for President Trump's impeachment, and he was acquitted. Um, he is officially not an impeached president. So,
0: Still an impeached president, just not okay. a convicted okay. president. Okay.
1: Thank you. Thank you. You're good. right. Right. Words. <laughs> Last thing. Another update. So, President Trump is leading the Republican ticket far and away for the primary elections. Um, The Democratic ticket is a close call. Pete Buttigieg is leading by only one delegate um, ahead of Bernie Sanders. And this is after only... Two primaries. We've had Iowa and New Hampshire so far. We're going to have a, a full calendar on our blog site that shows when the different um, both caucuses and uh, primary elections are um, coming forward. So keep an eye on that. Jack, what do we have going on at the state? Yeah.
0: Yeah, so first things first, actually a little state-slash-federal um, update, as I know last time Kate had talked about the um, potential for block grants um, to be a different way in which federal government administers funding for Medicaid, um, and the C- uh, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, known, uh, known as CMS, has released a report outlining what exactly they want this to look like, and um are calling this program, or er, calling a one model of this program, the Healthy Adult Opportunity um, Program. And so we are going to post more information on our website, but the it's a pretty complicated um, way in which this can interact with uh, the state's current uh, Medicaid expansion proposal um, and that the state could either uh, choose to pursue um, a different <clears throat> mechanism such as this, or they could go with a standard uh, match that is currently set up. So we'll have to check back with you here more on that. And then driving the news this week in state health care news um, is current as the state Senate president and current U.S. Senate candidate, Susan Wagel from Wichita, um, her recent action to tie Medicaid expansion to abortion restrictions. So if you'll remember in the last episode, I told you how the legislature was debating um, a constitutional amendment that they would send to voters to provide the final vote on in August um, that would allow the legislature to provide restrict or to have restrictions on um, abortion in the state, which would be overturning previous Supreme court state Supreme court rulings. So that's, bill that I had discussed failed in the House. And so, as it currently sits on Monday morning at the time of this recording, that is not going to be on the ballot um, for voters in August. And so, in response to that failure of that bill, Senate President Susan Wagle, as I mentioned, um, has decided that she will not allow any Medicaid expansion bills to go forward until that abortion amendment is added um, to the ballot. And so, there's essentially, I think, two components to this. First of all, as a point of negotiation um, between, um, these individuals who would like for Medicaid expansion to pass, obviously, and those that want the abortion amendment, um, to pass. But then there's this additional component is that many pro-life legislators are concerned, um, that expanding Medicaid would mean more taxpayer funded abortions. And, um, There's a lot of reasons for that thought process. I think in some other states where um, abortion has been expanded, there's been data that shows that. um, And additionally, because no federal funds could be used for abortion, any abortion that's provided to um, individuals on Medicaid would have to come from state dollars. So Hmm. a concern that a lot of Legislators have, and it'll be very interesting in the coming weeks to see how that gets worked out um, given such a a strong um, step by the Senate president. um, And we'll see how that responds. Keep in mind, the big proponent of this abortion or of Medicaid expansion is the vice president of the Senate. So this is Republican vice president of the Senate, Republican president of the Senate, really clashing on this provides for a really interesting debate about policy and politics in the state capital. The only other state news today is that there was a bill um, that was introduced and discussed that would shift the creation and the maintenance of the immunization schedule from the Kansas Department of Health and Environment to the legislature. And this is a move that is opposed by many public health experts as it would um, potentially allow for political involvement in our vaccination schedule. And as a result, there was some good discussion about this and we'll keep you updated as those discussions uh, continue.
1: Wow. Um, A little bit of lighter news for you. Um, Health professionals are taking over TikTok. And for those of you that don't know what TikTok is, which includes me, I'm really still not sure, even though my sister keeps sending me all sorts of TikTok links. I think it's like Vine.
0: Yeah. So my sister explained it to me. She's a seventh grader. She said that Vine
1: went away. Which Vine was just a... Twelve what? Twelve second video that videos that people would post super short clips.
0: Yeah, it went away, and then musically was around for a little bit, and then musically became TikTok. And what it is, Kate? I think it's just the departure of the can I say millennial BS to Generation (laughs) Z BS. A great way to waste your time.
1: Sure is. It's still better
0: than Game of Thrones, in my opinion. I don't.
1: Wow, that's a hot take, sir. Yeah,
0: it's the hottest of takes. I stand by it
1: whoa kind of hurt my feelings anyways so health professionals are taking over TikTok to try to uh, tailor to the youth and they're putting different um, like public health messages and different ways that you can stay safe out there with your health Um, different preventive techniques if you will so if you want a great chuckle today and also you do learn something like their information I haven't seen one yet that I was like but Go check them out. Uh, They're just cringy enough that you're like, aww, and you still laugh. So it's good stuff. That's all we got for you today. Have a great Monday, and we'll see you in two weeks.
0: last episode, we heard from Sheldon Weisgrau. Sheldon works for the Alliance for Healthy Kansas, which is a group that is dedicated to expanding Medicaid. So he provided you a lot of good data and a lot of reasons um, why many legislators are in support of expanding Medicaid. And today, for our hot take, we have Dave Trobert from the Kansas Policy Institute here to explain some reasons um, why there are many opponents to Medicaid expansion. So Dave is the Chief Executive Officer of the Kansas Policy Institute. He's a frequent speaker to business, legislative, and civic groups and also does research and writes on fiscal policy and education issues. Um, he's uh, published many books, including um, his book about the tax policy, What Was Really the Matter with the Kansas Tax Plan? Traubart regularly testifies before Kansas House and Senate committees on state budget, tax, and education issues, and was appointed a member of the Kansas K-12 Student Achievement and Efficiency Commission. He serves on the Task Tax and Fiscal Policy Task Force and co-chairs the Education Finance Joint Working Group for the American Legislative Exchange Council. Well, Dave, thanks for being with us today. Can you boil it down for the listeners? Some of the main concerns that might be present with legislators or other people in the community that are opposed to Medicaid expansion?
2: Sure. You know, and there's there's really a long list of reasons, and they vary. Um, I'll start with one. Um, the uh, there's a study out of Oregon that showed that people on Medicaid weren't better off health-wise than those who didn't have medical insurance. Um, Another another issue is that of the 90,000 estimated adults that would be uh, eligible if we expanded, uh, 54% of those eligible adults already have private coverage through their employer or through the individual marketplace. And another 23,000 get, roughly, uh, 23,000 get premium support for private coverage through the Obamacare exchange. And still more could be eligible for premium support if they just work about 30 hours a week at minimum wage. So there's lots of people who either already have coverage or could get coverage, uh now without spending a penny and you know if we do expand though most of these people uh for one reason or another will lose their private coverage and, and be forced to go on to Medicaid, which arguably is not as good as the private coverage they have because their private coverage uh, you know isn't restricted to doctors who take uh, Medicaid. And let me, let me go with a few other reasons very quickly. Um, we already have an estimated 5,500 disabled people. These are some of them are physically disabled, some are developmentally disabled, who are on the waiting list in Kansas for regular Medicaid, 5,500 people already eligible, not getting coverage. If, if Kansas has to spend money on Medicaid expansion, that puts these 5,500 uh, disabled people even farther behind. They may never get coverage. Uh, the cost is another reason. Uh, Governor Kelly has it in her budget that this would cost $35 million in a full year. That's ridiculous. The Kansas Health Institute set, put the co- total cost at over $100 million, and the actual costs that states are experiencing that did expand are at least double what the original estimate is. Nobody has come close. Some states are seriously struggling to balance their budget, dealing with huge billion-dollar deficits because of Medicaid expansion. And Kansas is already dealing with big deficits. The spending we've had so far, which is a lot of huge increases for schools, has already, within two years, we're going to be facing uh, shortfalls. Everybody knows that they don't want to talk about it, but it's out there. Uh, and and so spending more money on even thirty five million and that it'll never be that low, but even if it was that's thirty five million dollars that either has to be raised in a tax hike or most likely uh, means that services there's there's fewer services left so uh, this isn't going to save rural hospitals that's been another uh, that was something touted, even Governor Kelly now admits that won't take place, and all those deficits I was talking about and the costs they're based on a 90 percent federal match uh, where the feds would pay 90 percent, which is really our tax money, and, and the state would pay 10. But if Obamacare is considered unconstitutional and that's in the court now, if that's found to be unconstitutional, the 90 percent match could go away and Kansas would pay 45 percent of the cost instead of 10, four and a half times whatever the real cost turns out to be.
0: Okay, thank you, Dave. So I know we've talked a little bit about what other states have witnessed, and uh, when you think a little bigger picture, though everybody is talking about Medicaid expansion, what other things do you think the state should be looking at as it relates to providing health care to its citizens?
2: Well, uh, that's a great question because there are many options, and in fact, when we did our uh, latest statewide public opinion poll uh, uh, which was asking if Kansas expands Medicaid uh, how would they pay for it one of the options this was multiple choice one of the options we provided uh, was don't expand but find other ways to make healthcare more affordable and that was the number one response at 56 percent So, last year, the state expanded association health plans. That was a good step in the right direction. Other things that can be done would include removal, removing occupational licensing barriers. Uh, People like uh, advanced practice registered nurses uh, are not allowed to provide their services unless they pay for, it. get a, permission slip from a doctor. They have to pay a doctor a license fee just for the privilege of doing what they're already allowed to do. And this can be as much as $50,000 a year. Uh, So, take away that licensing barrier, uh, and just let uh, APRNs uh, practice and provide healthcare. Uh, another one is allowing out-of-state doctors and dentists to provide free services. You can require hospitals and doctors to publish their prices, and so people can, can negotiate and, and go where they're gonna get better prices. Expanding telemedicine is another option. Changing the state rules on group definitions. Uh, if, you know, in Kansas, the, the state allows insurance companies to set certain rules on what qualifies as a group. Uh, Kansas Policy Institute, my employer, is a good example. We only have eight employees. We're one of those many, many small employers out there. and But because we only have eight people, the insurance company is allowed by state law to say, you guys can't have regular group rates. You have to pay individual premiums right now. Because government allows insurance companies to say, even though I'm still working, full-time employed, they won't provide a, um, a supplemental plan for me They'll, unless I pay full price. You know if i don't want to go on the government medicaid medicare plan i should why should i burden taxpayers with my health coverage when i you know all i did was turn 65 i'm still working and i have no intent of quitting for quite a long time so let me stay on my regular plan and save the tax dollars medicare Uh, and the last thing is we could do is provide federal and state deductions uh, tax deductions for insurance premiums just like employers get if an employer provides Healthcare insurance, they get to take that as a tax deduction. Uh, Individuals can't unless they have exorbitant medical bills. Uh, Doing that would allow uh, people to have less dependence on their employer coverage. They're in a better position to negotiate. And then as they move from company to company, they can take their plan with them. And that, uh, moving from one employer to another, is one of the leading reasons why people get caught up in that uh, pre-existing condition thing. If you can take your plan with you, even if you go across state lines and pay for it yourself, then you don't have that problem.
0: The only last question I have is, uh, is there anything else that you want to share with students?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question, and thanks, Jack. Um, Ask questions. Uh, Don't just assume that what you're getting from, whether it's from someone like us, a policy shop or a reporter or a legislator or anyone, don't assume that you're getting the whole story. You unfortunately have to ask questions ask what are all the consequences because as we talk there are many valid reasons uh there that to consider not doing this all those unintended consequences it's very similar to doing a medical diagnosis you don't want to just know what the symptoms are in this case some people don't have medical coverage Um, you don't want to treat the symptom you need to diagnose the underlying disease and understand how to de- that's how you deal with the problem too often in public policy we only treat the symptoms
0: here comes the dose
1: yeah here comes the dose You've heard sides for and against Medicaid expansion, so to dive deeper into the specifics of what that would look like in Kansas, we have Carrie Bruffett. She's the vice president for policy at the Kansas Health Institute, where she oversees policy activities, project management and operations, and supervises team leaders. Before she worked at KHI, she worked in state government um, as secretary of the Kansas Department for Aging and Disability Services, and as the director of the Division of Healthcare Finance at the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. Here she played key roles in the development of the state's Medicaid-managed care program. Prior to KDHE, she served eight years in government affairs at the University of Kansas Hospital, one of our very own. Here, hear
0: that place rocks.
1: Yeah. And then before that, she worked in D.C. as a congressional staffer. We're so excited to have Carrie on – here we go. Let's learn a little bit about Medicaid expansion. All right, Carrie, thank you so much for being on today. So we want to start by just revisiting what the general eligibility requirements are in Kansas now for Medicaid or CanCare here in Kansas.
3: Sure. So the CanCare program, which is a combination of the Medicaid program and the Children's Health Insurance Program in Kansas, has about four hundred thousand people who are currently enrolled. Um, that number can fluctuate from year to year, but um, right now, the last re- most recent. Number number I've seen is around 400,000. Of those folks, um, about three quarters of them are children or parents, low-income parents, uh, very low-income parents, parents whose income um, doesn't exceed 38% of the poverty level, which for a family of four is less than $10,000 a year. Um, and And then kids, and pregnant women. So for children, the income levels vary for the thresholds vary for Medicaid eligibility, but for the Children's Health Insurance Program, it's the same. So this is CHIP, as it's called, eligibility for those kids um, starts at wherever the Medicaid eligibility ends and it varies by age. Um, and it goes up to, in this year, 235% of the federal poverty level. So, And then for pregnant women, it's uh, the threshold is 171% of the poverty level. So this year, I think it's about $43,000, $44,000 a year for a family of four. Um, so the Medicaid expansion group that we're talking about would be Um, adults age 19 to 64 who are uh, in households that have income up to 138% of the poverty level. And this is a number that's set by federal law by the Affordable Care Act. And that can vary from year to year as well. Um, Well, that it does vary from year to year, of Mm -hmm. course, as the income, the poverty threshold increases. Gotcha.
1: And so you were mentioning children under Medicaid and chip. Mm-hmm. They're combined in, in can care, but mm-hmm. can you just describe kind of why those are uh, described as two different? Programs.
3: Sure. the The federal government um, established the Medicaid program in 1965, and I know you talked about that in your last podcast, sort of the history of Medicaid. But the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, um, it's just a separately authorized program that Congress um, uh, adopted and the president signed, and it's. Um, it has a higher income threshold. Uh, it allows basically states to add eligibility above the Medicaid thresholds for children. Uh, and states can vary what that, that, um, the higher end is. And the federal match rate for the Children's Health Insurance Program is a little bit higher than it is for the Medicaid program. In a typical year, it tends to be about 12% higher match rate for the Children's Health Insurance Program than for Medicaid. thing.
1: So something we've seen uh, kind of popping up over the past few months is is this presumptive eligibility enrollment at some FQHCs or clinics around the area. Can you tell us what that is and how that affects patients?
3: Sure. So, presumptive eligibility has been around for a while, and particularly for pregnant women and for children. Um, The Affordable Care Act actually expanded that um, to other populations, particularly the, the Medicaid expansion population in states that ultimately have expanded Medicaid. And basically, it allows hospitals and other qualified entities, and they have to meet some some qualifications that a state Medicaid program may set up, it allows them to get folks immediately but temporarily enrolled in in Medicaid while their eligibility um, applications might be pending um so it doesn't have retroactive coverage like um, actually when they when folks are actually finally determined um, eligible for Medicaid. Um, once that's done, there can be some retroactive coverage. But this temporary coverage allows people to get coverage um, immediately, basically just based upon some some basic information they provide to providers.
1: I think that was something that kind of stressed us out. in our last episode hearing that people have to wait 45 days, but it sounds like there are a lot of Things, and mechanisms in action to help speed up that process for people, especially the more vulnerable populations.
3: And I think some of the, it's, but it's still true. There is up to 45 day for the eligibility determination. Um, and that's the f- sort of the federal standard for, um, I won't call it exactly a permanent determination, but for that official determination of, for eligibility.
1: Gotcha. So expansion, I, I think that a lot of people view it and in some States it has been this way Is we just press a magic button and then our eligibility shoots up to 138%. And it's not that simple, especially here in Kansas with the different proposals that are being discussed. So can you kind of talk about what those different proposals look like? What is um kind of at the forefront here in Topeka? Sure. So um at
3: at KHI, and in fact if um your listeners would like to go to the www.khi.org, we've got uh, a link to a tracking table that actually um, keeps track. It's very beautiful. <laughs> it is very beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, <Wonderful> um, chart. <laughs> it's a chart that we try to keep track of the various uh, Medicaid expansion proposals that have been introduced um, going back to last year and trying to keep up on a weekly basis to any change that uh, might happen to any of the proposals that are moving or might be moving through the legislature. So, um, the one that you'll hear about right now is Senate Bill 252, which is um, a bill that was a result of a of a compromise between the governor's office and Majority Leader uh, Senate Majority Leader Jim Denning, um, and so that that. Is the piece of legislation that, at least in the early part of 2020, has really gotten most of the discussion? Um, there were le- national discussion at that. Yeah, <laughs> impact. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, last year, though, there were other pieces of legislation. In fact, uh, um, it's uh, amended. House Bill 2066 that actually passed the House of Representatives that had different provisions than you'll see in Senate Bill 252. Um, so both of those bills are out there, as well as others that we included in our tracking table that have been introduced and, and some proposals that were discussed over the fall and the interim as well. So some of the things that are, that are maybe, as you said, not like flipping the switch and saying we're just going to expand Medicaid that have been talked about include... Um, um, having work referrals. Some states have implemented work requirements where, um, expansion enrollees have to meet a certain uh, requirement, maybe 20 hours of work a week or 80 hours a month, or be exempt because they're caring for children, or maybe they're enrolled in school, or or they're applying, can show that they're applying for jobs. Um, so some states have had those approved and, and implemented. Um, but Kansas, none of the Kansas proposals, at least at this point, have work requirements. And so that's an important distinction for people to keep track of, because sometimes you'll hear there's work requirements in the Kansas. Kansas bills, And at least at this point, um, they all have, uh, if they have anything, they have something called work referrals, where if there may be the same level of if, if folks aren't working up to 20 hours a week, um, then instead of a requirement to either meet this work requirement, in fact, they would be referred to an existing state uh, work uh, development program. Um, and the bills do it a little bit differently. A couple of the bills have a different ideas about what that would look like. But that's one of the proposals in Kansas. Um, And one of the things that's been talked about, another um, element that's been talked about in Kansas that's been implemented in some other states include premiums. So right now in the CanCare program, for people who are currently eligible for Medicaid or CHIP, only Only, as I mentioned, some of the children in the Children's Health Insurance Program, some of those families owe some monthly premiums. Um, But for the rest of the population, there's no premiums and no cost sharing. Um, So uh, some states have implemented premiums with Medicaid expansion, and some of the bills also have, and in various and different versions of what a monthly fee or a premium might look like in a CanCare expansion. So, So the federal government typically wants to protect the folks that are at the lower end of the income spectrum from either having to pay the same level of premiums or be disenrolled, face a penalty like disenrollment if they can't pay their premiums. Uh, But they have allowed, particularly for those folks that are over 100% of the poverty level, so between the 100% of the federal poverty level and the, the 138%, that's the top threshold for expansion, they have allowed those premiums with what they call disenrollment. So, if folks uh, fail to pay for a certain number of months, typically like three months, then they might be disenrolled and may then have a lockout period up to three to six months where they can't re-enroll again. So, um, different states have different ways that they've implemented that. That is, Those are provisions that have been looked at in Kansas. And the way that the House bill and the Senate bill look at those is quite different as well. The premiums don't bring a lot of money to the state um, states that have implemented them. they might be put be put in place for other reasons though to try to institute an idea of sort of cost sharing and that consumer participation um, and that's that's a philosoph- philosophical reason that people might include premiums that is apart from you know trying to save money mm-hmm. because premiums can be pretty administratively complex and difficult to administer and other states have said that about um, you know work requirements as well and some of those provisions have costs associated with them but their advocates will say they're in place not just for cost or or savings reasons but to for reasons related to To um, public policy and what they want to see in public policy. And so that's part of what the discussion has been at the state level. So you're saying that
0: if a state were to collect a certain amount of premiums, uh, that 90% of whatever
3: the state collects would have to go back to the federal government? It doesn't work quite like that. I think the best way to explain it, as I understand it, is more that the premiums reduce the cost, the state's cost. Okay. And so therefore the match, the federal match is less. So that the, the match would have been 90% of this total cost. So the fact that the cost is less, the most of that savings is really going to the federal government, more so than sure. passing through a premium. That makes, yeah. that, makes, that, makes, yeah. that makes sense.
1: And real quickly, the match is just if I cost... Um, Clinic $100, then 90 of those dollars are going to be paid by the federal government. 10 of those are what is going to cost the state.
3: Yeah, and that's a good way to put it because sometimes when you think of match, you think it's like a 50 50 match would mean you're only getting half of the, that is, but it's not like, um, The $1, to think of it as the federal share, more Mm -hmm. so than the match. I think that's the best way to say it. Sometimes we try to say the federal matching percentage, but it really is more like the federal share of the cost.
1: So the 90% match uh, kind of brings us into our next question regarding the poison pill. um, That is kind of a hot top or hot buzzword that I think people talk about. So can you kind of expand on that and what would come of these different bills if the poison pill... Or to be.
3: Right. If you hear it described as a poison pill, it basically means uh, what would happen if. For some reason, the federal government would um, change what the federal match rate is for the expansion population. If it uh, went away from being a 90% federal match and either reverted to the standard match, which in Kansas this year it's 59% federal and 41% state, um, but varies from year to year. Um, in some states, it can be the, the lowest it can be is 50%. I mentioned that 50-50 earlier. The the lowest standard match rate um, that any state can have is 50%. So um, if for some reason the if Congress would take action um, to change that match rate, um, then the bills, the legislation have various ways of dealing with that, including basically sh- shutting down the expansion, um, either transitioning out of the expansion or immediately closing down the expansion. The, the language varies in the bill, but in the various bills, but all of them have that sort of that same element. The ones that have moved so far anyway, have okay. the same element of, hey, we want to we want to ensure that um, if the federal government backs away from that commitment, then the state isn't going to be on the hook mm-hmm. for the, the sort of typical state share without have without making a decision that they want to keep the program going, um, uh, you know, regardless of the share. So it certainly this- wouldn't rule that out, but the state would have to take action to do that.
1: Gotcha. So just quick clarification this this higher match rate of 90% if we choose to expand if Kansas chooses to expand versus the 51 that it's at is that what you said 59 59? i think it's
3: a, yeah it varies again it's it changes every year
1: that was a a element within the ACA to kind of incentivize states to expand is that correct is that kind of what, where the, it originated or is that? Well,
3: we'll remember though, that in the original Affordable Care Act, there wasn't going to be a cause for incentivizing the states yeah. because there wasn't an option. It was the Supreme Court's uh, ruling that actually made it the expansion optional. Um, but it was basically a way to say um, this is a, a different expectation than, um, than the Medicaid program has had so far for Medicaid for the federal government has had for Medicaid programs in states. So there's a higher federal commitment for for it. it actually started out at 100% in the, in the first year of expansion and it scaled down gradually to 90%, but then it sticks at 90% federal from gotcha. there, uh, there forward.
0: So, some organizations have put out these uh, numbers indicating this is how much money Kansas has foregone by not expanding Medicaid. Um, that is simply a product of.
3: Right. It's a a product of what the federal match rate is for the expansion population and expectations of how many people would enroll in Medicaid if it were expanded and what their costs would be. some providers, but sometimes that's used calculated based upon how much of a reduction of uncompensated care costs and how much the med, uh, Medicaid would be paying for that. But for the most part, it's usually estimated based on what's the what sort of state or federal funding would have been brought in if the state had expanded Medicaid. So what the federal match rate would be compared to the, the total state cost. And so you know, you've heard different numbers about the estimates of the number of people who would enroll in Medicaid if expanded. And, uh, often you'll hear 150,000 people, uh, the KHI, our estimate is a little lower. We have, uh, we estimate about a little over 130,000 people would newly enroll in Medicaid or, or, um, Cancare if expanded. Um, The largest group of those are adults that would be newly eligible, um, including some adults that might move from some other who might have otherwise enrolled in other categories. For example, women who later would become pregnant, but now could enroll in Medicaid without... Um, being pregnant, and then maybe later they become mm-hmm. pregnant, and they become then they move into the pregnant women eligibility category at their at their annual redetermination rate. So it's about a hundred thousand of them, and then but then we do actually the KHI's estimate has always included the indirect effect, and it's definitely an indirect effect on children's enrollment too. Um, so we estimate that we think that some kids would be more likely to enroll um, if their parents newly enrolled in Medicaid. Um, we also think some of the outreach efforts in that would go along with expansion would increase enrollment even for those kids whose uh, parents might not newly enroll um, because they have income that's a little bit too high, but there's the Children's Health Insurance Program, the CHIP program that, that would be available to them. Uh, Folks will say, and accurately, that, well, heck, that's already state policy to cover children all the way up to, right now, 235% of the poverty level, so you shouldn't include kids. And I think that's a fair point. It's why it's not included, for example, in the state's fiscal note um, um, related to expansion. But KHI has always included that just as a broader picture, a bigger picture of what the potential effects of of expansion would be. And it's consistent with research that shows that um, states that have expanded Medicaid do have had really good, um, um, improvements in their uninsured rate for children. so reduction in the uninsured rate for kids. Um, and that's certainly considered to be associated with their expansion decision.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So it, it always comes back to the cost for, I think a lot of people and what are the numbers looking like for when you crunch all the new enrollees, plus we have the change in the match rate, plus health outcomes? What are the projected numbers for cost?
3: Right. So the the way that KHI looks at it, again, we think of the newly eligible adults who without expansion wouldn't be eligible. We think think about some indirect effects of... On adults who might be already eligible, who would enroll, and then the children as well. So, um, our estimate shows in 2021 um, that the net cost for new adult, newly eligible adult enrollees would be about 15 million dollars, and but that's after you account for a lot of savings from other programs, for example, or from. From indirect effects or some direct effects of expansion. For example, um, the state has a tax, a premium tax, that's placed on on uh, managed care organizations, which I know you discussed on your last episode as well. What those are. So um, there's a 5.77 percent privilege fee. So that privilege fee comes into becomes state. Funding, um, and basically that's that helps offset the the total cost of the program. Um, not just for Medicaid expansion, that's that's true for the entire Medicaid program. But an increase in the number of enrollees would decrease, would increase those those tax premiums as well. So that's one of the big offsets. It's kind of a new revenue that would come in with expansion. So one of the things we talked about is that this expansion is going to be a um, will increase the under KHI's estimate would increase the enrollment in CanCare by about a third, by about 33% increase. Um, but the net cost to the state because of that match rate and because of some of the offsetting savings and everything would go up about 4%. And fixed costs. Yeah. 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 And fixed. And the administrative costs would go up and that those are true. And those are kind of tend to be uh, most of those are at a 50, 50 match rate. But, um, but those offsetting things that the 4% of the total budget is what the increase would be for a 33% increase in the enrollment.
1: Oh, that's a very simplified. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. Yeah. And it's and that's the state and again, that's the state net cost and yeah. and to be fair, there are folks who talk about well we should think about the whole cost and the federal cost as well and that's uh, but our focus has typically been on well here's the total federal but then what does it mean sort of the net impact on the in the state overall. Okay. That's super helpful.
1: So how are things looking overall? What is the projection this year for is it gonna? Is it gonna pass?
3: You know, I think at the beginning of the session, and particularly once the the um, the deal between the governor's office and the Senate Majority Leader was announced, and the bipartisan um, Medicaid expansion bill, I think it was um, shorthanded as, and has twenty two co sponsors, so a majority of the Senate already is co sponsoring the bill. Um, I think the thoughts were that there's um, there's high level of support for Medicaid expansion, what exactly that expansion looks like in the end, I think um, still remains to be seen. There are a lot of other policy issues, though. I think there's no guarantees. And if I've learned anything, I don't try to predict. (laughs) (laughs) And that's certainly not a role of KHI as a neutral body (laughs) that's trying to provide information to try to predict either um, what exactly will happen. But I do think the 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 discussion is at a different level than it has been the last few years around Medicaid expansion. Um, for a while, it's really been about, well, what are the what are some of the key questions that folks want to have resolved? Um, you know, there may be other issues that become part of the discussion as well. Um, but in the end, I think it really boils down to some of the topics we talked about
1: today. Gotcha well wonderful i don't think i have any other questions do you
0: i don't know thank you so much for answering all of our questions yeah. it's time
3: to do this oh and I, I thank you very much And i'm sorry if i got a little bit into the weeds i am well, want to do that kind so, of
1: hard not to it's yeah. a complicated issue and yeah ridiculous.
3: but it's important and you know the providers you guys that are training to be physicians and, uh, and your listeners who are already healthcare providers or others this is it's it can seem complex it's it's policy complex. It's not as complex as whatever subject matter Jack just refer to that you guys are learning about, I'm sure. Um, but having, um, having an understanding of these policy issues is so important because the voice that um, healthcare uh, providers can have in the policy um, argument or the policy debate is, is really strong. And I think probably collectively isn't fully utilized and so I think the ability for individual physicians or other clinicians to be able to understand um, the topics of the day, the health policy topics of the day, and maybe you're all not going to come out on the same side of what you think the, the results should be, but to be able to have your informed position, informed by your real life experiences dealing with patients, I think that really adds to the policy debate. So I think it's great what you guys are doing and, and to the extent that has that that talking about all these policy things around Medicaid expansion helps, so I, I appreciate the chance to to try
0: To to this episode, we hope it was a helpful outline on Medicaid and Medicaid expansion. Um, we would ask that you please send us any questions you might have, any because anything anything at all, because we are going to take the next episode to do QA based on your questions. So send us an email, healthyakks at gmail.com, with your questions, and we will pour a glass of wine and probably
1: two or three
0: and just get to answering those questions here next week.
1: Thanks so much. I'm Jack. I'm Rachel. I'm Kate. And And this this is is Health Yeah! Yeah.
0: Recording and production for this podcast was done by Health Yeah! in collaboration with KUMC, Department of Family Medicine Research Division. Thoughts and opinions are our own and not a reflection of the University of Kansas Medical Center. Intro and outro music used for this podcast is Southern Dreaming, performed by the Sheepdogs.